in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Let's pray. Father, it is in you that we live. It is in you that we move. It is in you that we have our being. And you have called us, granted us faith in your son, and it is by him that we stand before you. And so we come today in that weakness and in that dependency in all humility, and we ask that you teach us. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago when I was a young church planner in Arlington, Virginia, I found myself overworking and in conversation with one of my mentors, asking him how to navigate the pressures of planting a church. And as he listened to me, he finally asked me a a very embarrassing question. He said, Chuck, do you have any hobbies? And I had to think through my life. It was like going through a Rolodex that had about two cards in it. And I was able to say, no, I don't. I care for my family and I plant this church. (laughs) I don't have anything else going on in my life very profound. These are the two things I'm given to. And he said, Chuck, those are very important things. You need to be continued to be committed to these things, but you also need to learn how to attend to other things that God's doing in the world, and perhaps a hobby would be a good thing for you to do. And so he gave me an assignment, basically instructed me to think about gardening. He knew that I liked to work in my yard and tinker around there, and so he said, I think I'd like you to grow a garden. He had reasons for doing that, and so I began to investigate and do some study. And I began reading about raised bed gardening. I bought books and really geeked out. Diving in, building a raised bed garden. And I was particularly focused upon building the physical structure and then also, you know, thinking about what I was going to plant. This was what I was really preoccupied with. And the books that I was reading were rather annoying, though. 
because they were not very focused on the physical structure and they were not very focused on what I was going to plant. But the first several hundred pages of these books was about one thing, the soil. And I read more about manure and good soil and worms and all kinds of things that were totally not interesting to me. But it was then that I began to appreciate that in all those pages about the soil, that the garden was not going to be fertile, the garden was not going to be vital, the garden was not going to yield what you wanted it to unless the soil was healthy and good. And when we get to Romans 14 today, when we arrive at this place in particular, it's, this argument is going to run all the way into chapter 15. We have to recognize that Paul is addressing something very specific in church life. And this will come as a challenge because he's speaking about the culture of the church. This is like talking about the soil. Because this was a church that had challenges and there were tensions. And he's attempting to work in some principles of the gospel that are like the soil of a garden. Those principles allow all good things to grow. and allows it to grow in the right direction and in the right way. But also he knew that there was a disease in this young church and it was fractured and broken because the soil was not good. And so we're going to be focused in that horizontal dimension once again today where we're thinking about our relationships with others and particularly relationships inside the church. But of course, all of those horizontal relationships in the book of Romans, all of those are contextualized by our relationship with God. And so what's really critical for us this morning is to ask and answer the question, what exactly are the components of a gospel-centered church, of a gospel-shaped culture in the church? What does that soil look like and what are the parts of it? And there's three things in particular in Romans 14 that we're going to see. We're going to discuss the essentials of belonging to the community, a critical part of Christian culture. Secondly, the diversity that the gospel allows and creates and fosters in non-essentials. And thirdly, the basis of all of this Christian freedom that we will discuss. This is one of those sermons that comes with qualifiers, and it comes also with warnings. As some people would say, preachers are good until they start meddling. And Romans 14 is one of those passages that calls and permits the preacher to meddle, to point out and to talk about the importance of guarding the soil. And so this is what the meddling is about today. Some questions will be left unanswered, but know that it is an invitation to conversation if you find yourself disturbed about anything here. And so great deal to take care of, so let's go ahead and get to it and talk about that soil. First, we see the essentials for belonging to the community. The essential is stated in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, we'll return to that word weak, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. This emphasis on welcoming one another is the key to the argument that's going to run from 14.1 through 15.7. 
where Paul then says this, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so when Paul is speaking to this young church that was quarreling and had tensions, particularly between Jews and Gentiles, he is attempting to explain to them as to what it is the soil of this church is to be and that the essential ingredient of that is that they were to welcome one another in Jesus. That the Christian community is a radically inclusive community. And it's radically inclusive around its central and core principle, who's a person, and that is Jesus. And so the one discriminating factor, the one discriminating factor that God allows and that Paul writes of here is our beliefs. It is a matter of creed. This is the line that people come in and out over. That the one essential thing to belonging here is faith in Jesus. And that we are to welcome all who believe in Jesus. No matter where they are. Paul is speaking about those he classifies as weak. And then as those he classifies as strong. And so whether mature or immature. When someone comes and they are looking to Jesus in faith. And they're looking to him to be the one who alone can handle the the problem of personal sin, to be the one who brings healing to that relationship with God and reconciles us to him, to be the one who brings healing to the entire creation and world upon his return. When someone is looking to Jesus in faith in that way, they are welcome inside the church that this is our culture. Because Paul explains in verse 3 that we are to welcome everyone God welcomes. Follow with what he says right at the end of the verse. Don't judge him, for God has welcomed him. In other words, what God is saying is that we don't get to discriminate based on race. We don't get to discriminate based on social class, on appearance, or past behaviors, or sins, or failures. No, when someone professes faith in Jesus, they belong in the church. This is their home. God has called them his own. And who God welcomes, we're not given any permission to not welcome. Because when Jesus dies for sins, he grants every one of us a new status. We saw this in Romans 4 in particular, that we're counted righteous or considered righteous. It's not that we are righteous in ourselves. In fact, we learn in in chapter 3 that we're unrighteous because of our sins and our rebellion against God, a rebellion that every one of us has participated in, that we have all sought to be autonomous from God. But we're welcomed by Jesus and we're reconciled to God in right relationship with him, our communion restored. And then the restoration of that vertical relationship then has massive horizontal implications. And those horizontal implications are what Paul focuses upon here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr from World War II, still captures this best as he speaks about this idea of welcome in his short little book, Life Together. And listen to what he says. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done 
to both of us. And friends, this is the gospel, this is the culture, this is the soil that the gospel creates. That our church, in order to really be living in line with the gospel, has to have that soil. That sinners are welcome. They're welcome as they look in faith to Jesus. And so this is the essential for belonging to the community. Second component of this soil, we see the diversity that the gospel fosters in non-essentials. There's a debate going on in this Roman church, and there are problems. Just like any church, this early church had problems. And we have to do a bit of a deep dive for a second to understand exactly that historical situation and what was going on. And Paul mentions this in a series of different verses that we'll walk through. First, in verse 2, he says that one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, so we got some vegetarians and those who are not. Verse 5, he mentions that one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Some were observing certain practices on particular days, and some were not. And then in verse 21, one that we did not read today, we discover that some drank alcohol and some did not. He gives labels to these groups. They are called the weak and they are called the strong. Who exactly are they? It is important. This is not just Bible trivia. The weak are the vegetarians. They don't drink. They abstain from alcohol and they observe certain days. And so the weak were the ones with the scruples. It appears that these weak are the primarily Jewish Christians that had come back to Rome and were re-entering the church here. The observance of days was most likely about the Jewish regimen of observing the Mosaic calendar and also observing certain days for fasting. The abstinence from meat and the abstinence from wine was most likely that those two commodities, especially in a Gentile culture, were sold in the Roman marketplace. And the Roman marketplace, meat and wine, was associated with idolatrous sacrifices. And so not wanting to taint themselves with idolatry, this is what we find in the book of Corinthians, that context is important. Several people were arguing that they would not drink or eat that meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And so this is the context of the weak. Now the strong were most likely these Gentile Christian converts who for about 10 years had been running the church while the Jews had been banned from Rome. Now the letter's being written at the time when the Jews are coming back in, and so all of a sudden you have a hot mess inside of this church with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and the Gentile Christians have had the run of the thing for a while. And so Paul calls the Gentile Christians the strong. They eat meat. They don't observe the Jewish calendar. And they drink alcohol. This is who Paul calls the strong. And so we see that these two sets of practices create a division and there is a quarrelsomeness in the church. 
And if there's anything that is ever the death of good soil in a church, it is when a quarrelsome likeness takes over and theological debate turns into all kinds of personal debate. Paul sides with one group here. He particularly sides with the strong. But yet he also critiques both groups. He has something to say to them. And this is what's critical for us to hear. To the weak, to the one who abstains, he admonishes them for doing one particular thing. They were passing judgment on the one who did not abstain. Listen to what he says in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And so this is the critical thing for Paul. It's not just that they were vegetarians and didn't drink or eat meat and that they observed certain days. He was not so much concerned about those practices, but what he was exercised about is that because people did not join them in those practices, what were they doing? They were judging them, condemning them. And it doesn't seem that they were saying that these Gentile Christians needed to do this in order to save themselves, but they were saying that they needed to observe these practices and they were casting judgment on them. And that's the main problem that was going on in this young church. And the one who abstains rarely recognizes that what Paul is saying is that they are the one who is weak in faith. Paul doesn't forbid them from practicing things, but he harshly critiques them for the scrupulous nature of those beliefs and their willingness to then use them as a weapon against other people in the church. Now to the strong, that is the one who partakes, they had grown frustrated with the weak. And so his word to them is equally powerful. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. You can imagine the situation if you were being judged and condemned because you didn't follow along with these practices, practices that the Bible never makes explicitly clear, what we would call non-essentials, that when you get judged by that, there is some response that typically comes. And Paul says they were despising those who did abstain. And so the weak are the scrupulous and condemn others who do not follow their practices. The strong are those who respond in despising and in some type of arrogance. And so there was this diversity of opinions inside of this early church over non-essential matters. The essential thing was faith in Jesus. We saw that in verse 1. But then there were all these non-essential things, non-essential things that Scripture did not speak clearly to, that people were then making essential. And friends, it was a problem then and there in the first century, the early days of the church. It's continued to be a problem through the centuries. It's a problem here and now, that non-essential things get elevated in the life of a church, and people begin to contend that they're essential. 
and that this corrupts the soil and the health of the culture of the church. You ask, how does it happen? We will discuss for instances. It plays out in modern issues for us, where we have to recognize when things are non-essential. And a healthy church, the soil of that church, what it allows to grow is an acceptable diversity where God is silent and doesn't speak to something directly. For instance, there are COVID vaccines. Some Christians feel incredibly passionate and strong that everyone should be vaccinated to do everything they can to love their neighbor. Some Christians feel passionate and strong equally that this is not something that they should participate in. And one of the things that we have to recognize in the Christian community is that this is a non-essential. That we don't have a direct word about vaccine participation. As much as I wish some days there were specific verses for certain things, there is not one on this. It doesn't break either way. And so what we do in those moments in a healthy Christian community is we respect the diversity of practices. We respect that diversity. Now, what we also don't do is we don't respect that diversity and then let everyone run wild in their opinion to create a quarrelsome situation. No, we ask everyone to operate with that kind of diversity. Of diversity. There's the issue of alcohol consumption. It's been a particular issue in the American church for the last roughly 140 years or so since the prohibition movement. Some believe that the dangers of alcohol speak against the wisdom of any consumption. And then some would say, no, that the Bible indicates that this is a good gift and allows us to participate with moderation. And these are issues that people are judged on and condemned by because of their choice in this. This, too, is a non-essential. Or there is the matter of schooling, a relevant topic for many of our young families. Should children be schooled in public schools? Should they be schooled in Christian schools? Or should they be schooled in home schools? The answer is yes. <laughs> there are no doubt any number of opinions about where your children should be schooled. The problem is there's very little scripture to back that up, to really make that argument, and to really directly indicate what you should be doing. And that the matter of schooling, each one needs to make up their own mind. This is what Paul says, and it's so critical for us to hear it today in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That standing before God, we ask the question, what would you call us to? In the matter of schooling, the Colsons have confusingly done all three at different times for various reasons. But it was purely out of this, God, what would you have us to do in this time, for this season, for this child? attempting to exercise as much Christian wisdom as possible. And this is the kind of culture, it's the kind of soil that the gospel creates. It creates a freedom in non-essential matters. 
Paul says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And do you note that critical qualification? Whether you are abstaining or whether you are partaking, giving thanks to God. And when we think about all the things that we differ on inside of a Christian community, we have to ask ourselves, am I thanking God for that thing, whether I am abstaining or partaking, and am I doing it in honor of him, or is it in service of something else? Critical questions for us all to think about. The gospel grants you this freedom, but the one thing that you're not free to do and as the pastors and elders of this church are charged to do, is we cannot allow you to have permission to pass judgment on other people in these non-essentials. Our task is to preserve your freedom, and that means to guard everyone's freedom. That in the essential things, these are essential. But in the non-essential things, there is going to be charity, and there's going to be diversity, and there's going to be respect, and there's not going to be quarrelsomeness. This is the culture that the, that the gospel leavens inside the Christian community. Third thing we find here is we find the basis of all this Christian freedom, though, this diversity where good things grow. Several times in the passage, Paul takes a run at this argument, okay? He begins in verse 4. He asks the question, and it's particularly a question directed to the weak, why are you to pass judgment, or who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him to stand. And then he chases this further in verses 10 through 12. And he addresses both the weak and the strong. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you... Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so what's the basis of our freedom in these non-essential matters, areas that Scripture does not speak clearly to, cultural matters that we must make judgments on? Our freedom is the knowledge that we belong to God. That you belong to God, that I belong to God, that you stand before God, that I stand before God. And that each of us individually have to answer to God. And that there are these areas of life, not the essential things that scripture makes clear, but there are these areas of life where we are entrusted the responsibility to determine our own mind and conviction for ourselves and the spheres of our responsibility. This is the freedom that the gospel creates. It's the kind of culture it promotes. And that we're not given permission to despise, that is to respond arrogantly, and we're also not given permission to judge. And friends, this is the high calling of the Christian community, to always be able to determine and walk through what it really means 
to know the things of first importance. That is those essential things. And then always to be able to recognize the non-essential things, the things that need to be left to the individual conscience to work out. And so that's our calling together, to guard that soil, to want that soil to exist in all of its goodness and all the good things that that soil can grow, to allow diversity in the right places, to create uniformity in the things that are essential from Scripture, namely faith in Jesus. And so let's build that kind of garden, not just simply focused on the plants, not focused on the box, more so focused on the soil, the manure, the worms, all the nutrients that help the good things of the gospel grow and flourish. Let's pray. Father, we recognize the challenge of these things. And that in so many different areas, we want more certainty and clarity than you give us. And you ask us to work out these things in our conscience to have our own mind. And yet at times we want to go past that. We want to make our opinions the law of the land. We want to state these things for others and we pass judgments and we turn and despise one another. Help us to put that away. May we hold forward the essential things, the things that you've clearly revealed in Scripture. And God, would you allow our community to flourish, built around that, growing in that soil. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.